Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are continuing our We Are Trailhead series, talking about the really the values that, that shape our hearts and, and lead our hands as a community, uh, as a body of believers. So this morning we're going over to Matthew chapter 11, and uh, that's going to be page 816 in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chair in front of you, and you're going to be going over to page 816. While you're flipping over there, uh, I do want to remind you that we do have a Newcomer's Cafe today at 1230. It's not in the bulletins. Um, if, if you haven't been to one, I mean, even if you've been coming for a couple of months or whatever, uh, if you haven't been to one, this is a great opportunity just to, to sit down, um, eat a free lunch, and uh, ask some questions. And um, I'll be up there and giving you a little bit of history and talking a little bit about the church and really just relaxed uh, dialogue about who we are, what makes us tick. And so it's a great opportunity uh, for you to just get some more information and then figure out next steps, what it looks like to uh, move forward uh, in our community. So I invite you to come back at uh, 1230 for that. All right, in Matthew chapter 11, we are spending five weeks looking at the values that shape us as a community and um, the values that mark us really distinctively as followers of Christ. And uh, so we're going to be looking at Matthew 11. Starting in verse 25, we're going to read through verse 30. All right, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Word of the Lord. All right, we live in a culture that celebrates big things. We love big things. I mean, it it doesn't even matter, right? If you're traveling through the middle of nowhere and see a sign for the world's biggest ball of yarn, right? It's probably going to have like a permanent placard on the highway, and you're going to be like, that is worth driving a half hour out of my way to see the world's biggest ball of yarn. We love things that are big. We also love leadership. We love leaders who build big things. We really, I would say, have a cultural idolatry about big things and good leaders. We, we love both. So it seems like we spend a lot of our energy trying to figure out how to make things bigger, how to make them more profitable, how to make them more significant, how to make them more known, how to, how to, how to expand the boundaries of influence. We are just looking to go bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're always looking for leaders who can get us there. And if we are leaders, we're continually looking to improve our leadership so that we are able to do that, right? So it seems like all the leadership material out there is, is dealing with this idea of breaking through the barriers that hold us back, right? There are books, there are conferences, there are coaching programs, and they all promise you this. I mean, and this phrase, man, I've got to tell you, I'm a little bit sick of it. It'll take you to the next level. 
It'll take you to the next level. How do you get to the next level? Man, it is time to get to the next level. What are the barriers from keeping you from getting to the next level? Interestingly enough, the church world isn't any different. I, I wasn't always in the church world. I was, I was uh, in sales and was um, a, uh, an educator, was a teacher and a principal for 17 years. I kind of got used to it a little bit in the, in the private school district as well as in the sales world. Um, and then when I transferred into the church world and actually went for, to work for the church, it was a little interesting that, that it was really the same thing. Um, there are tons of conferences for church people. <laughs> like, I don't know how they have time for all these conferences, but there are nonstop conferences, and pretty much every conference you go to will either have a plenary main session or at least multiple breakout sessions that are all about breaking through the barriers. How do you break the 100 barrier? How do you break the 200 barrier? How do you break the 400 barrier? Let's help you get to the next level, right? There's an assumption in our culture, that you just aren't big enough, ever. (laughs) You just aren't big enough, because success is measured by getting bigger, becoming more profitable, gaining more influence. You aren't big enough, and the problem is you're not big enough because you're not a good enough leader to make it bigger, right? So you you need help to, to become more focused, more insightful, um, better equipped, funnier, whatever it is. So the goal is bigger and the solution is better leadership. All right, you guys, that's the wrong goal, first of all. Um, healthy things do grow. Healthy things do grow. But so do unhealthy things. There are a lot of very unhealthy things that grow, and and we've seen it, and it's not a good thing, right? So just because it's growing doesn't mean it's good. There's all kinds of growth out there you want to avoid, right? So just making it bigger is is never a good goal. Uh, It's not a good goal. A good goal is not to get bigger. A good goal is to get healthier. A good goal for leaders are not to lead to an increased size, but to an increased level of, of health and vibrancy and joy, and integrity. All right, you guys, Jesus was the best leader the world's ever seen. That's pretty much undisputable. He, he spent three years investing into 12 men, and those 12 men changed the world, right? I mean, it was so significant that the Western calendars are completely structured around him, right? B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of the Lord, right? We have structured our entire understanding of time, around him, right? So he was an incredibly effective leader. And today we're going to be taking a look at some of his leadership coaching. And not surprising from Jesus, it's a little bit countercultural to us. It's going to be a little bit challenging and a little bit different than some of the stuff uh, we think and what we hear. Here's the thing, you guys, there's there's only one way to, to level up in the Christian life. And that's by leveling down. Because in God's kingdom, God's strength is manifest in our weakness. In God's kingdom, God's glory is manifest in our availability. And His grace meets us in our humility. So we're going to be taking a look at a fairly famous passage of Scripture this morning. 
where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, that's, a, that's one of those verses that, that is very popular, right? You'll see it on coffee mugs over at Hallmark Store and things like that. Um, what is not as well known are the verses surrounding it, right? The context of that invitation, which I think is fairly important. So we're going to begin in verse 25, and uh, we're going to begin with really kind of a strange prayer. Starting in verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. So he's praying to his Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I mean, that's a strange prayer, you guys. Because he starts off by saying, thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, the all-glorious, all-powerful one, for hiding stuff from people who want to find it. Thanks, Lord. What's he hiding well, in the verse, it says hiding these things, and, and in the context, we kind of have to read into that a little bit. I would say it's fairly safe to say that the, the, these things are the things that the wise and the learned are trying to find through their wisdom and learning. God is hiding, in a sense, the things they're trying to get, the secrets of true success, the meaning of life, the secret key to prosperity vibrancy, joy, growth, and glory. And he's like, Father, thank you for hiding that from the very people who are looking for it. And not just hiding it from them, but revealing it to them. Thank you for hiding it from from the wise and the learned and revealing it to the the kids, (laughs) the little group of kids over there that are Telling fart jokes. Thanks for revealing the secret of life to them and hiding it from them. I mean, this is a strange prayer, you guys. I mean, seriously, think about it. What if I told you that I had the secret key, that piece of knowledge that could solve all of our nation's problems, all the tensions diffused, all the injustice set right? But I wasn't going to tell the wise people, the powerful people, the smart people, the policymakers and the financial shakers. Not going to tell them. I'm going to go tell the kids, like the little kids, the ones that are over there still playing in the fort, goofing around, the ones that are waiting for their moms to feed them dinner, the ones that are completely dependent on their parents and really have no care in this world other than eating, breathing, playing, sleeping. I'm going to tell them. Hmm. You might be a little angry at me. You might even feel like I was betraying you and our country because it's kind of absurd, you guys. That's what I want you to get right up front. I mean, this prayer really is weird, right? We read this stuff all the time. We just kind of breeze through it like, oh yeah, I guess he didn't really. No, he He's thanking God for weird stuff, right? It's almost as if he wants the wise to fail in their wisdom, which could, from the outside, look as if he were cruel and malicious, that he simply wants to compound the suffering of the people that are uh, under these leaders. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 26, Um, And and yes, Father, for such was your gracious 
will. His hiding this stuff from the wise and the learned was, in fact, grace. That means that it wasn't malicious. It was protective. This wasn't God withholding blessing. This was God giving blessing. What that means is something really bad would happen if God equipped the wise to solve these problems with their wisdom. Something really bad would happen if God equipped the strong to solve these problems with their strength. It would actually make the problem worse and increase our suffering. So Jesus begins with this weird prayer, right, where he thanks God. Thank you for hiding these things from the wise and learned and revealing them to the little kids over here playing in the dirt, right? Thank you for doing that. And then in verses 27 and 28, he switches from talking to his father in prayer to talking to his disciples, right? But it's still kind of crazy talk, right? Take a look at verses 27 and 28. All these things have been handed over to me by my father. All what things? Well, all the things he was just talking about. This, this, the, the key to solving all the problems, the, this, this perfect magical knowledge, this insight to why we exist, the purpose of life, and the meaning that drives it. Not just the knowledge, but the power. All these things have been handed to me by my Father. So Jesus is saying, I've got the magic key. Right? I've got it. And then he goes on and he says, And no one knows the Son except the Father. Well, there's, there's a couple of weird things going on here. First of all, Jesus is claiming that God is, is his Father, which for us doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, in America, someone might claim their dog is their God, and we're like, oh, that's, that's an interesting philosophy. I mean, it really just doesn't matter to us. In this world, though, at this time, uh, they took the view of God very, very seriously. And they took the idea of blasphemy very, very seriously. In fact, in another context, when Jesus called God his Father, the Jewish leaders actually took up stones to kill him because they saw it as blasphemy. When he said, God is my Father, he was speaking of, of the holy, sacred God, creator of all the universe, the one who, who lives in, in inapproachable light and glory. And when Jesus said, I am his son, he was claiming a level of intimacy with him that was completely foreign and unknown to this world. And yet we see him doing it privately right here with the disciples again. This is my father. And my father has entrusted me with what you're looking for. I got it. But um, here's the catch. Here's the catch. No one knows the Son except the Father. You think you know me? You don't know me. You know what I've revealed about myself. I've allowed you to get to know parts of me. You've gotten to know a little bit about me, but you don't know me. Only the Father knows me. And then he goes on and says, not only that, and no one knows the Father except the Son. You think you know God? You don't know God. You may know about God, but you don't know God. Only I know God. He's speaking of knowledge here, not simply as knowing facts, but the knowledge of relationship. The kind of knowing that is talked about in Genesis 1 and 2, where it says Adam knew his wife. 
<laughs> right? He wasn't saying that he knew facts about her. He was saying he knew her intimately, right? When it talks about the Father knowing the Son and the Son knowing the Father, it's talking about them having an intimate relationship of knowing and being known, loving and being loved. Only the Father knows the Son, and only the Son knows the Father. It is a closed system that we are unable to break into. And in that closed system is the delight of love and relationship, of community, of knowing and being known. And then he goes on and says this, and the son, and by the way, this closed loop, this closed system that you can't get into, anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So there are others that get into this closed system, but they're, they're people that only get in by invitation. They only get in by revelation. Jesus has to show them something they don't naturally see. Jesus has to show them something that, that they're unable to see. The Son has to reveal the Father. So I just want you to notice the similarity between these two passages, right? The Father doesn't reveal critical information to people that are seeking it, instead reveals it to children. The Son has the power to reveal, and He's the only one that can reveal the information. God the Father conceals and reveals. God the Son conceals and reveals. Which means if we're going to know what we need to know if we're going to enter into the relationship we need to enter into. There's only one way to do it. Through revelation. Through invitation. And in fact, then comes the invitation. Take a look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a beautiful invitation. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you living a life of diminishing returns? Where you're putting out more and more energy? Working harder and harder? And experiencing less and less joy? Where the things that used to give you pleasure are giving you less pleasure, the things that used to give you joy are giving you less joy, but you keep going back to them over and over and over, trying to once again experience something that you haven't experienced in so long. The weight of, of trying to improve yourself, the weight of trying to fix yourself, the weight of trying to solve all the problems in your home, in your family, in your marriage, with your kids, in your workplace, in the community, in, in, in yourself. Are you weary? Are you tired? Come to me. Are you tired of trying to be smart enough or patient enough or strong enough or clever enough? Have your kids pushed you to the point where you simply don't know what to do? Is your marriage challenging you in a way that you no longer even know how to pursue intimacy? 
Are you struggling with the results of a divorce and trying to figure out what it looks like to be strong and broken? To move into a melded family, to lead your kids while you're bitter not to become bitter? Are you weary and tired? Are you exhausted with all of life's choices, trying to decide who you're going to become and what you're going to be when you don't even know yourself yet, trying to set a path through college or choose a major or decide a a career, and you don't even know what the world's going to look like in 10 years? Are you weary and tired with trying to build and grow and improve and fix Have you reached the point yet? That point where you're just like, you know what? I think life is just above my pay grade. I don't get paid enough to do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. This is beyond me. I am weary and I am weighed down and some days I'm doing my best just to keep it together. Jesus is saying to you, you tired? You weary? Then come to me and I'll give you rest. It's an incredible invitation. He's saying, look, I have. (laughs) I have the magic key. That opens the box of strength. I have the magic knowledge that that gives purpose and meaning. I I have the magic solution, the magic formula that gives joy and strength and purpose and meaning. I have it. So how's he going to give us the rest? By letting us take his yoke. Take a look at verse 29. Come to me, all who labor and have you laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) How is sharing his breakfast going to help me out? Okay, most of you probably know what a yoke is. I'm going to explain it anyway. A yoke is a farming utensil that was very familiar to Jesus' audience during, during this period of time, not so familiar to us. A yoke was, was a wooden um, tool that was fashioned so that you could harness together two oxen, right? Because a single ox would become exhausted trying to pull a plow all day long. But if you yoked two oxen together... The load was much lighter. They could work much longer. Uh, it, was, it was an effective way of doubling the strength and increasing productivity. Interestingly enough, when you doubled the strength, you didn't just double productivity. You often quadrupled it because they became tired much less slowly. The, the, the yoke was an incredible tool. It locked them together, combined their strength, and direct, directed their path. Now, the Jewish leaders who heard Jesus speaking would have been familiar with the yoke as a metaphor, because Jesus is obviously using it as as a metaphor. We're not going to stick a wooden thing around your neck. That's not going to happen. It's metaphorical. He's talking about a way of, of combining your strength with someone else's, right? Now, the Jewish leaders would have been very familiar with this because they often thought of the Jewish law as a yoke. In fact, they taught of it that way. 
So the Jewish law is, is that Old Testament portion of Scripture that, that is all about how to live right, right? It's all the rules. You guys are familiar with the, the Ten Commandments. Most of you um, probably could quote them, or at least some of them, right? They're very familiar. They're things like, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lust after your neighbor's things, honor your father and your mother, right? They, they, but there are more than just the Ten. The Ten Commandments are the distillation of the law. There, there are over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament Jews saw this book of, of the law, this book of rules, as, as a yoke, right? Something they could uh, tie themselves to that would help them cut a straight line in life and help them be successful. It would make life easier, it would make life better, because if they simply lived by the law and did the right things, they would end up plowing a straight line and having a fruitful life. You guys, the reality is, in approaching it this way, they treated the law very much like we would treat a self-help book today. They saw the law as a self-improvement project. I just need to start doing these things and stop doing those things. What I need is a little more discipline, a little more focus, a little more patience, if I can just improve myself, right? So, so it's this way of, of finding and analyzing, what are the weaknesses that are holding me back? What are the areas in which I'm simply blocking my own ability to break through to the next level? And I need to fix those things. I'll focus on those things. I will make my weaknesses my strengths by fixing them, and the law will help me. So they would feel their need, and they would look to the law and when the law, they, they looked at the law, and the law was this pillar of strength. I mean, it really was, was this monolith of strength. It didn't change. It, 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 was, it was unassailable. It wasn't questioned. It, it, it stood both in culture and against culture, and it had a strength to it. So they would yoke themselves to the law. They would see this strength, and they would think, if I can just tie myself to that, it'll make me stronger. If I can just, that, that's so strong, it's so high, it's so noble. If I can yoke myself to that strength, I will be strong. So they yoked themselves to the law. It will show me how I need to improve. It will show me what I need to fix. It will make me stronger. It will take good men and make them better. You know, we do the same thing, you guys. Um, when you read the latest parenting book, and you're like, I'm going to yoke myself to this author, or to this system, or to this approach, when you read the latest self-help book, the latest leadership book, the latest self-improvement project, the latest exercise regimen, the latest popular coach, the latest perfect mentor, I will yoke myself to their strength, and their strength will help me identify my weakness, and the solution, of course, is in finding the weaknesses and improving them. Some people, in fact, approach church like that. Some people come to church. I've heard this. I've sit down with people across coffee, and they'll say, you know what, man? Pastor, I'm just a, I, I've just gone the wrong way, and I need a little religion in my life. 
because I'm, I'm getting messed up. I'm making bad choices. So I just need to, in a sense, what they're saying is yoke myself to a moral uh, uh, organization that's helped me going to get my morality straight. Help me start making wise choices. Help me identify where I'm weak so I can get strong, so I can polish this thing up, right? Because I'm, I'm kind of going down the wrong path. I need to cut a straight line. I think religion is, is going to help me out, man. So, so I'm going to yoke myself to religion. It'll straighten me out. Because we're continually asking, how can I fix myself and how can I make myself better? So when the Old Testament Jew did that, they looked at this, this pillar of strength and thought, it will make me strong. It's straight, it's strong, it'll make me straight and true. The problem is, you guys, that's not why the law was given. <laughs> the law was never given for that purpose. Take a look at this. This is Romans 3.20. Put it on the screen. It says this, For by the works of the law, in other words, by yoking yourself to the, the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one's going to make themselves right. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, they approached the law like it was a self-improvement advice, but, but the law was never given as self-improvement advice. You know why the law was given? To show them their sin. To show them their weaknesses, not to fix it. Because when they came to the law and they saw the straight pillar of strength, they would compare themselves to it. And the whole purpose behind it is that in the comparison, they would come to see their need. In the comparison, it wasn't that the, the law was this, this pillar of strength that was supposed to lift them up. It was a, uh, an image of, of strength, an image of straightness and holiness and rightness and goodness by which they came to see how little they resembled it and how far they fell short of it. See, when we come to the law, the law doesn't make us better. It often shows us how we're worse than we thought we were, right? You come to the law and it says, don't murder. And you're like, at least hopefully, you're like, yes. Haven't done that. We're good there, right? Never killed anybody. Then you come to the next one. Honor your father and your mother. And you're like, yeah, you don't know my parents. You know, my dad and my mom. Whoo, all right, I guess I could do a little better. I'll send a Mother's Day card. I'll... I'll write a nice note, you know, I'll be polite on the phone call, that's, right? Meanwhile, in your heart, right, you have this tension, this pain, this hurt, this resentment. You're like, yeah, but see, my parents, man, you don't know my parents. My parents hurt me. I know. Mine too. That doesn't change the law. Honor your father and your mother. It doesn't say if they're good. <laughs> there are no perfect parents. And there are some really bad ones. Honor your father and mother. That gets really hard. Sometimes, sometimes I really kind of hate them. Oh, you remember that other commandment? Don't murder. Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart, you've just murdered. Really? I'm guilty of that one too? Yep. Yep. You ever covet your neighbor's home? You ever drive down the street and covet somebody else's car? You ever look at somebody else's life and think, man, I wish I had their life. I wish I could make their choices. I wish, I wish, I wish. You just broke that law too. See, that's the whole point of the law. You come and you compare yourself to this rigid, clear description. And you realize how badly you compare. See, if you yoke yourself to the law, you're yoking yourself to the very thing that condemns you. 
It doesn't improve you because it has no power to change you. All it can do is show you where you fall short. Same thing with all your self-improvement projects. They're just going to show you how you're not patient, how, how you don't measure up, how you're never going to be what you long to be, right? You're like, come on, man, just help me. I just need to be a little bit better. I just need to grow a little bit. But see, here's the thing, man. The law is doing what the law always does. It shows failure. In fact, it does more than that. It doesn't just show failure. It makes it worse. Take a look at these verses. Romans 5.20, now the law came in to, to do what? What's that word? Decrease, improve, what is it? Say it. Increase. Increase. You ever heard a pastor tell you that? God gave the law to increase your sin? God gave the law to actually make it worse? Not just to show you how bad you are, but to make the problem worse. Now, how does the law make the problem worse? Think about it. Sometimes you don't even know you want to do something until somebody tells you you shouldn't do it. You ever had that happen? The sign on the door says, keep out. And you're like, I never knew I wanted to go through that door before. I now want to go through that door. See, that's me, because I'm a rule breaker, right? I want to break that rule. You tell me I can't do something, I'm going to start wondering, what's on the other side that's so awesome that you don't want me to have it? I want to go through that door. You put up a don't walk on the grass sign, man, I am on that grass. I'm laying in that grass, rolling in that grass, trying to figure out why that grass is better than mine. And some of you are like, Steve, you're not talking my language. That's not who I am. You put up a sign that says, don't walk through that door. I'll never walk through that door. You put up a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. I'll walk a mile out of my way not to put a foot on that grass. That's not provoking me to sin because I'm so righteous. All right, you walk a mile out of your way around the, the grass to make sure you don't walk on it. You get to the other side, you see me rolling in it. How do you feel about me? You've just broken the murder commandment. You did. You're like, where's the police? That guy needs to be judged. Right? And the police come and they beat me up. And, they, and you're like, yeah. Self-righteous. Right? The law increases sin, you guys. It doesn't just show us our sin. It provokes our sin. That's what that next verse is, Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, that is, means living in our own power, living trying to improve our own lives, living by our self-improvement projects, our sinful passions are aroused by the law. The law comes in and stirs them up and makes them worse. Because we look at the parts of the law that we think we compare well to, and we puff ourselves up in pride. And we look at the parts of the law where we don't compare well, and we minimize our sin. And pretty soon, we're not looking at the law. We're looking at one of those funhouse mirrors. You know the one that kind of makes your chest look, you know, and your waist nice and thin, right? And you're like, oh, I like that view. I wish everybody could see me like this, right? And pretty soon, you think that's actually how you look, right? Because you're no longer looking at the law. You're looking at your perverted version of the law because you can't measure up. You guys, the law was never given to improve us. It was given to show us our need. The law was given to increase our sin and arouse our sinful passions to make us more desperate for help. 
The law shows you where you measure up and where you fail, and it is true and it is honest and it is good. But it is measuring broken and sinful hearts and only has the power to show that sin. This is why every self-improvement project fails. Every self-improvement project fails. Because God hides the wisdom from the wise and the knowledge from the knowledgeable. When you're trying to get the meaning, the vibrancy, the, the, the core of what makes life worth living, when you're trying to get it in your own power through your own self-improvement projects, God's not going to give it to you. That's not the way to get there. It's not going to happen. I had a friend who um, was driving home one day and uh, pulled into his cul-de-sac. And as he pulled into his cul-de-sac, he, he had this, this aroma, this putrid aroma hit his nose. He was like, oh, somebody's having a bad day. It was the smell of raw sewage. He pulls down to the end of his cul-de-sac, into his driveway, gets out. He's like, holy cow. Eyes are starting to water, right? He's like, somebody's having a really bad day. Goes up to his front door, unlocks it, opens the door. It is so strong, it almost knocks him down. He's like, I guess I'm having a really bad day. It's me. So he goes inside his house, and, and he's looking in the bathrooms, and he's looking around, and he doesn't see anything, and he walks through the living room and through the kitchen and comes around to the door leading down to the basement. Well, they had just spent the last several years finishing their basement. Their kids' bedrooms were in the basement. Their family room was in the basement. It was really nice, carpeted, finished basement. And he opens the door, and he looks down the steps, and he sees about eight or nine inches of brown liquid with white chunks floating in it. Uh, there was a, uh, a cave-in on the sewage line out by the street, and the entire neighborhood's sewage was backing up in his basement. And he looks down there, and, and, and the kids' blankets are floating. You know, some of you are like, this is, you're making it worse, Steve. It was bad. I mean, it was bad. Like, can you imagine that moment? And the toys are floating around. I'm not making this up. You can't. At the bottom of the steps is one of the kids' toys, and it was a Bob the Builder toy. And if you've ever heard of Bob the Builder, Bob the Builder is this obnoxiously positive figure who's always like, yeah, and this Bob the Builder electronic toy is floating in the goo and malfunctioning and flashing and beeping and saying over and over, can we fix it? Yes, we can. Like, no joke. It's floating in the goo. You guys, that, that, that's how God sees us with our self-improvement projects. When we think we just need to clean ourselves up a little bit, we just need to fix this and iron that out, and if I can just address this issue and get a little more self-control and, I don't know, get a little handle on my, my temper and, and, and just grow, you know, in patience with my kids, and if I can just get a little more wisdom, if I can, right, we just, I just need to clean myself up a little bit. Like, you are floating face down, dead in the cesspool of your own sin. 
and you're grabbing what's around you and scrubbing you and saying, I'll, I'll clean myself up. God, look at me. I just need a little cleaning. I just need a little help. You need way more than just a little help. So what's the solution? Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Do you want the wisdom that the wise people can't find? Do you want the solutions that all of your self-improvement projects have continually fallen short from giving you? Do you want the strength that the strong man can't attain? Take my yoke and learn from me. This is not a yoke of self-improvement. We don't yoke ourselves. We don't take Christ's yoke as, as a way of improving ourselves, as something we add Jesus on to our already good life just to make it a little bit better. That's not the way it works. We don't yoke ourselves to Christ as a way to just clean ourselves up a little bit and fix a, a few problems. That's not the way it works because we're not adding Christ to our yoke of self-improvement. We are yoking ourselves to Christ's yoke. <laughs> it's His yoke, which means we submit we don't command. We yoke ourselves to His nature. We don't try to harness Him to fix ours. This is not a yoke of self-improvement. This is not advice on how to get better. This is not a yoke of personal strength. This isn't a yoke up here that you look at and you're like, if I could just yoke myself to this strength, it'll make me better. It'll improve me. This is a yoke of lowliness. Right? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This isn't a yoke of strength and personal glory and self-improvement. This is, this is a yoke of humility. This is a yoke of lowliness. Jesus is saying, if you want to take my yoke, you've got you to gotta come down here. You've got you to gotta come down here where I am. But, but, but I like to think of myself as up here. I, I don't like to think of myself down there. I, I, I want to think of myself as, as strong and just needing to be stronger, as good and just needing to be better. No, you need... Like, really, I've got to come... Down, down here? Like, down here? This, is, this isn't a position of strength. This, this isn't a position of personal glory. This is not a position where people see me and praise me and sing my, my praise. This is not where I like to see myself. Here? No, down there. Like, down? Like, have you ever been at that place in your life where you were just so overwhelmed and broken and empty of strength that you have nowhere to go but down? And in this place of weakness and shame, 
where you don't have the answers and you don't have the strength and you don't have what it takes. This is where you find Christ's yoke. Because it's down here when you're like, Lord, I'm, I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer. I, I don't have the solutions. My kids need more than I can give. My marriage needs more than I can give. My, my heart needs more than I can give. Do you reject me? Are you as sick of me as I'm sick of myself? See, it's there. There. That you hear Jesus say, I don't reject you. I was never impressed by you. And I don't need to be. I love you. I'm not waiting for you to clean yourself up. I'm not waiting for you to fix yourself up. I'm not waiting for anything but for you to humble yourself and meet me in your place of need where you can hear me say, I love you. I died for you. I walked into your cesspool and I died your death. I bore your shame. I took your place. And when I rose again, I didn't do it so that you could fix yourself. I didn't do it so you could improve and clean up your broken and ugly and dead life. I did it so you could have a new life. I did it so that you could be clothed in my resurrection. See, when you meet Christ here, he lifts you back up. But, it, but it's not the lifting up of self-improvement. It's not the lifting up of self-esteem. It's not the lifting up of now I can hold my head high and think good thoughts about myself. It's the lifting up that says, I am loved. See, that's grace. Undeserved, unearned favor in which we get to simply bask in the love of our Savior. And when you stand back up in that strength, you're not frail and brittle like you were. You're not full of pride and self-condemnation. You're not even thinking about yourself because your vision is filled with the one who loved you. The one who clothes you with his dignity and his honor and his love. The one that gives you a new name, a new purpose, a new future. Take my yoke. The yoke of lowliness. The yoke of humility. And in that, you'll learn wisdom. And in that, you'll learn joy. And in that, you will actually learn that secret that you couldn't find before, that secret to purpose and meaning and joy and fulfillment. You won't have it all figured out. You won't suddenly be able to solve every problem. But you won't feel like you have to because you're loved by the one who can and will. You have come to a a peace with your helplessness. You have come to a place of peace with your inability. You guys know how God hid this from the wise and learned. Remember Jesus prayed, thank you for hiding this from the wise and learned. You know how he did it? He hid it in plain sight. (laughs) 
The invitation is for them too. They just won't get down there. The invitation is for the prideful. But they can't see it. Because they can't see beyond their need for self-glory, self-solutions, self-autonomy, self-will. The invitation is for all, but not all take it. You guys, humility. When you take the first step of humility, it's going to feel like death. You mean I got to give up my dreams? I have to give up my ambitions. I have to give up my, my vision for building my glory and expanding my kingdom. That feels like death. You know why it feels like death? Because you're proud. And humility always feels like death to the proud. But as we put our pride to death, we are freed into the strength and the joy of humility. It's not that you lose your dreams. It's not that you lose your future. It's not that you lose yourself. You find yourself. Because you're no longer trying to build a kingdom in competition with God's. You're no longer trying to establish a glory in competition with God's. You're now finding your glory in His glory, your kingdom in His glory, your purpose in His mission, and your meaning in His love. Which you were exactly created to do. The yoke of humility is the yoke of love. And when you stand in that yoke, you are happy to disappear in His glory. You don't need to compete with Him for it. Because in His glory, you find your glory. In His kingdom, you find your kingdom. In His, in his mission, you find your meaning. So a few thoughts as we wrap this up. First, your Maker made you for humility, you guys. He made you for humility. Let me, let me just remind you of something. You're made out of dust. We forget that all the time. We get so puffed up in our pride, so enamored with our glory, so impressed with our beauty, right? Look at my abs. You can actually see them. Not mine. Can't see mine, right? But, you know, you, you know what I mean. Like, I have sculpted my body into this picture-perfect perfection, or at least I have found clothing that hides my imperfections and helps me look perfect, right? Wait, look how smart I am. I'm so intelligent. I am smarter than smart people are smart. I got degrees and education. Look at my money. I'm such a good businessman. We get so impressed with ourselves when we forget that we are made of dust. You are a mud man. You are a mud woman. God was playing one day in the dirt and he made you. And then he said, you know what, I kind of like this one. I'll breathe the breath of life into him and fill him with my glory. You know how ludicrous we must look to the angels with our little chubby, little mud fingers? So limited, so weak, so frail. Angels in all of their glory look down and they're like, God, really? They're the ones you made in your, your image? You are a mud man. You are a mud woman. <laughs> you were made for humility. How ludicrous it is to think that you were created to compete with the glory of God. You guys, God is a humble God. And He loves to show His glory in humble places. Which is why He has put His glory on such humble creatures. 
And even in our rebellion against God and our desire to compete with God for his glory, he was humble enough not to reject us, not to judge us, not to simply rain down the water of his judgment and turn us back into the mud pool from which we began. He instead said, I will step in to redeem and restore because my glory will be manifest in their weakness. My name will be made great through these weak creatures. And people will see my glory in their weakness. You guys, humility isn't some effervescent experience that you can't foster. Every once in a while, I'm kind of humble. It's just recognizing the reality of what is. You're not all that. You can't compete with the glory of God. You're really not that important. But that hurts my self-esteem. All right, listen, when you know you're loved by the creator of the universe, that he has, in fact, placed his glory on you, that he sent his son to die and rise for you, you don't need to think more highly about yourself because you're going to think more highly of him. And if he loves you, guess what? That means you're meaningful. You're worthwhile. You're kind of incredible, not because of you, but because of him. You find your greatness in the sharing of his glory. The God of the universe wants to manifest his glory in you. What an incredible privilege. See, the thing is, we don't need to have a higher self-esteem. We need to have a higher Christ-esteem. We need to see the beauty of Jesus. And in his love, find our beauty. So, humility. That's what we were created for. It's just admitting what you are. Weak and helpless, but loved and cherished. Secondly, true strength is rooted in humility. True strength is rooted in humility. You don't believe this. I don't believe it a lot of the time. We think strength comes from powering up. Powering up in our intelligence, powering up in our energy, powering up in our productivity, powering up, right? If I can just power up, if I can just work harder and do better, then I will be able to overcome. True strength flows not from powering up, but from powering down. True strength doesn't come from controlling up. Some of you are like, if I could just control all the details, if I can just get everything in order, if I can just get all these loose ends together, then it can, strength doesn't come from controlling up. Some of you are like, well, I'm just worn out. I just need to comfort up. If I can just comfort up, I can get a vacation. If I can just get a rest, if I can just go sit in a hot tub, then I'm going to be okay. True strength doesn't come from comforting up. It comes from comforting down, powering down, resting. Because here's the thing. You're not just going down into this place like some people are like, well, you just want us to think badly about ourselves. No, I don't. I want you to think highly of Christ. We're most energized when we're most loved. We're most able to engage when we are most engaged by God's grace. True strength flows through true humility. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. God's strength flows through us when we simply come to that place of humility, acknowledging our limitations. In fact, embracing those limitations as a celebration of his strength and our weakness. Thirdly, true change flows from humility. True change flows from humility. There are things you want to change in your life, things that you want to improve. and The path to change isn't 
your self-improvement project. It's actually realizing you don't have the ability to fix what needs to be fixed. And then running to grace, that place where you're like, God, I have nothing, I have nothing but you. And in that place, sensing the nearness of God's presence, His approval, and His love. That will change you in ways no self-improvement project ever can. All your moralism, all your rules, all your attempts to improve your moral behavior will not do anything if you are not deeply gripped by the love of God. It is the internal transformation of a soul loved by God that has actually changed and becomes free. That's where we start, on our knees helpless. When we stand up in that strength, we will genuinely change, not just rearrange the furniture of our lives, but actually have our hearts transformed to be more like Jesus. Final point, you never arrive. You never arrive. You never have to stop fighting for humility. You never get to a place where you need to stop submitting yourself to that yoke. In fact, it's going to surprise you at times. You're going to be like, oh man, I thought I had this together. You're going to be like content and and self like... I don't know, kind of cruising along and being like, you know, I guess I haven't even prayed in a week. Haven't opened my Bible. Everything's been going great. I guess I'm, I'm in a pretty good spot, right? Pride grows in comfort because it, it, it fails to remind us of our desperation. We need to keep pushing into humility. We need to be a people who keep reminding ourselves of our need to be loved. Because humility isn't this humiliating experience. It is a liberating, beautiful, dignifying experience that allows us to experience the very presence and love of God. All right, I'm going to wrap up there. Uh, Let me pray for us, and um, I'm going to put some questions on the screen to to lead our reflection time. ask you to meet God in it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a humble God. I mean, that phrase is nonsensical to us. We don't even understand it. That you would be the source of all glory, the source of all power, the source of all wealth, the source of all meaning, and yet be humble. Jesus, you tell us that you are are gentle and lowly of heart. There's something beautiful there and something really confusing to us. Because when we have power, we're anything but gentle and lowly of heart. When we have everything we want, we're I just don't get it. Lord, I pray that you will show us the beauty of your nature as you meet us in our need. I pray for my friends that that are just wrestling, that you would give them the gift of humility, that they would, in desperation, simply fall in your presence to be loved, to be known, to be accepted, to be dignified. And in that place to be raised up, empowered, and changed. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.